Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and today's Jill's pin is the closest pin I had to looking like the Twitter bird. And you'll see why I'm wearing that today. Um, so we've talked about Twitter on this show before in connection with the effects of Elon Musk's takeover But recent developments require us to discuss it um, again, sadly. Last Thursday, Elon Musk banned 10 journalists who cover him. Uh, He claimed that they were doxing him when in reality they were simply reporting on publicly available information. Um, Elon then reinstated them a little bit after 24 hours later after polling Twitter users who said that he should do so immediately but then banned another journalist, uh, Taylor Lorenz, who we've had on this show, um, after she reached out to him for a comment about a story that she and a couple of her colleagues at the Washington Post were writing. Um, she too has been reinstated since then. Um, but who is next and who is Musk chilling speech with the threat of random expulsion still remains to be um, seen. Who knows what else he will do. Um, and then also on top of that, um, he said any accounts that post links to other social media accounts will be banned too. Um, I think these are just all examples of the erratic way that Elon, I think, is handling this company. And um, there's beginning to be profound changes and I think dangers to the value of free speech and democracy. And um, I'll let Jill introduce our very special guest with right. us today. Well, first I have to mention that Elon did another poll, one that asked if he should resign as the CEO of Twitter. And the overwhelming response was not surprisingly, yes, he should. He now says... Be careful what you ask for. So will he leave? He just visited Saudi Arabia. Maybe they, as investors, are saying, yes, you should. Will Victor and I get banned for having this discussion? Today we have with us someone who is an essential voice on Twitter and someone who got banned in Elon's Thursday Night Massacre, Aaron Rupar. He spent three years at Box News, where he was one of the foremost chronicles of Trumpism, explaining what was happening on the American right. He then left Fox News and is now an independent journalist writing his own substack called Public Notice, something you should all subscribe to. Aaron, thank you very much for being here. We're looking forward to talking to you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's get into what happened. Um, As we said at the beginning, last Thursday, Elon Musk kind of did this Thursday night massacre banning 10 journalists, including yourself. And he claimed to do so because um, you and and the other journalists were doxing him. First, is that true? What happened? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think it's true that we were doxing him. Uh, And in my case, um, you know, when I've done uh, media appearances to talk about this, I think people kind of have an idea that I was deeply invested or really um, spending a lot of time with this Elon Jet account, which was not the case at all. Um, and just to back up a little bit more, um, the tweet that got me banished was a tweet where I linked to a Facebook page that tracks Elon's jet using publicly available information. Um, any flight that you take um, can be tracked uh, for kind of obvious reasons. It you know is a safety thing. It prevents crashes, air traffic control, all that good stuff. Uh, But in recent years, uh, people have developed bots that can track particular private jets that are linked with, you know, whether it be uh, public figures, celebrities, uh, you know, even sports coaches, things like that. And so in this particular case, um, you know, Elon claims that people tracking his jet represents a safety concern. He cited this incident uh, with a lot of mystery still surrounding it in California, where he claimed that a stalker was trying to follow his family. It seems like his account of what happened there is questionable at best and as more evidence has emerged, um, 
it seems like the story that he's telling about this threat um, is a little bit overblown, uh, to say the least. But um, when I was banned on Thursday, I initially had no idea why. Um, I thought, you know, I've done a number of newsletters critical of how Musk is running Twitter. I've criticized him on Twitter. So, um, and you know, he's replied to me a couple times. And so my first thought was, you know, wow, maybe he's just purging people I just like, liberal journalists. Um, I hadn't heard anything at all from Twitter. So I was kind of left guessing. But then with help from reporters who were actually trying to report out the story of myself and other journalists getting banned, it became clear that beyond all of us being critics of Musk or doing reporting on Musk, the other thing that we all had in common was that we had shared this link to the Facebook page Mm. of Elon Jet. Mm. And uh, one other bit of context that's relevant is that the Elon Jet uh, page, they had a Twitter account that was doing the same thing, tracking his private jet. On Wednesday morning, um, Elon Musk banned that account. And this became a news story for a few different reasons, one of which was just weeks prior to that, Elon had posted a tweet saying that his commitment to free speech extended all the way to this Elon Jet account which he claimed was endangering his family. Again, I, I don't really think that's the case, but that was his claim. Yet he said that he was fine with it being on Twitter. And so when that account was banned, all I did was note to my followers that, hey, the Twitter account is gone, but if you want to follow Elon Jet, here's the Facebook page. And I linked to the Facebook page mm-hmm. uh, only to find out, you know, um, basically it was like, you know, 30 hours later the following evening that that tweet ended up getting me banned. Um, And just one last note on this is when I posted that tweet on Wednesday morning linking to the Facebook page, that tweet at the time did not violate Twitter's uh, terms of service. It was only later that day that Elon posted a thread explaining that even linking to accounts like the Elon Jet Facebook page would violate the terms of service going forward. So I ended up being punished kind of retroactively for something that violated no policies at the time, but subsequently was deemed to do so. And let me just note that there was no police report ever filed by Elon Musk. At least that's what the reporting says. So to the extent that he is claiming that there was some damage to him, he didn't think it was damaging enough to go to the police with it. Just wanted our listeners to know that. Right. Uh, Right. And and how did you find out that you got banned? So, yeah, I was actually... uh, sitting on the floor here in the condo that we're in playing with my seven month old. And um, I'd actually had kind of a low key day. I wasn't really on Twitter that much because um, I'm up here in Minnesota. We had a huge blizzard. And so both of our kids were home from daycare. Um, Our little guy isn't in daycare, but our two year old is. And so, you know, we're trying to wrangle kids all day. So I was kind of barely on Twitter. I had posted a couple clips earlier that day of Adam Kinzinger's farewell speech, but that was kind of it. And so I'm sitting on the floor and I start getting messages, you know, I'm I'm looking at my phone and I'm getting messages on Instagram and uh, email and um, text, you know, people saying, oh my goodness, what's going on? Your Twitter account is suspended. And so, you know, I was completely Mm -hmm. baffled by this and I pull up Twitter and I tried to post a test, you know, I I put test in the box to try and just post a test tweet and it wouldn't let me do that. It would a notice would pop up saying your account is suspended. You can't perform this action. And then about a half an hour later, there was a banner placed at the top of my feed stating that my account had been permanently suspended with a link mm-hmm. I wanted to try and appeal. And in a very on-brand twist, um, the link was actually broken. <laughs> <laughs> oh. link to try to appeal, it just it would bring you to like kind of this dead end uh, Twitter page. So, you know, even even that process didn't work. If you know, even if you wanted to appeal, I kind of assumed that it wouldn't work out if I did, but um 
So, you know, I was pretty dismayed at first, you know, kind of for obvious reasons when you have 800,000 followers, especially as an independent journalist. Um, those followers are my pool of readers and potential new subscribers. And it's how I kind of get my stuff out there into the world. Um, this experience did kind of make me a lot more active on other platforms. I've got a nice, I think I've got like over 60,000 followers on post, which is nice. Um, and one of my projects this week, although I'm not sure I'm going to get to it at this point, is trying to get up and running on Mastodon, um, which is a little more yeah. complex. Um, I've got kind of a working knowledge of computer science, but, you know, Mastodon, um, I'm going to need to teach myself um, sort of how to use it and what server to be on, all that stuff. So I need to clear out some time to do that. But um, yeah, so initially I was quite dismayed, but then um, within a few hours, you know, Elon posted a poll about when we should be unsuspended. And so as soon as he did that, you know, even though even though I was told I was permanently suspended, um, once those polls started getting posted, he ended up doing two polls on that topic. Um, you know, it was clear to me at that yeah. point that I would eventually be unsuspended. Um, actually, I was kind of secretly hoping that he would suspend me for at least a week so I could kind of take a week off. Uh, <laughs> it ended up only being like 30 hours that I was suspended. But yeah. uh, I think the two well, options in the second poll that he posted were either be either for us to be reinstated immediately or in a week. And I was kind of rooting for the one week the to one week one. <laughs> kind of chill out this week, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. So let's, I want to ask you more about your research on Mastodon and on post, because I too have set up accounts on those. And th the most difficult thing is deciding which Mastodon account you'll be on. The server. I, I, yeah. What server I picked. Oh, hi social. Um, and for no particular reason, except that I had heard of Ojai and I'm going to Ojai uh, with some girlfriends in uh, a few months. Okay. But I don't understand any of the rules of, you know, what does a hashtag mean? What does an at mean? What, you know, how do you post a picture? How do you answer people who comment to you? Have you found out any of those things yet? Yeah, I'm probably not the best person to talk to about Mastodon because, like I said, I have a... Uh, or Post. T tell me about yeah, Post, yeah. So too. Post, I have a little more knowledge of because I've, I've actually kind of figured that out a little bit. Uh, post, um, I do like aspects of it. I think um, it has a really kind of slick and clean interface. It's quite easy to use. Um, mm -hmm. I've noticed that the the user base there is highly engaged. Um, like, you know, I post things they get you know, tons of comments, tons of likes. And so um, people are really using it who are on there. Um, one thing I don't like as much about it is that in appearance, it reminds me a lot of Facebook in the sense that, you know, like one of the nice things I like about Twitter is that if you, you know, since I follow both of you two, if you reply to each other, I'll see your reply in my feed. And it kind of has right, that conversational right. component where yeah. not only do you see the initial post, but you see the replies. And so you kind of see the ensuing discussion about things. On post, it operates more like Facebook where, you know, like I will share an article or newsletter that I wrote and then there's a comment section below there so people can comment. But unless you actually pull up the comment section, you're not going to see mm -hmm. what people are saying about something that's posted on there. So um, that to me, you know, is kind of like an inherent drawback. You know, if, if you like that part of social media, that sort of conversational aspect of it. It doesn't really have that. Um, but the other thing I should note is that they are really kind of building out the site quite rapidly. It's still sort of in a beta mode. So I'm sure it will um, evolve pretty quickly. Um, like right now, you can't directly post video in post. Yeah. You have to you know, yeah. post a YouTube yeah. link or embed a tweet. And so I'm sure the functionality will expand. Um, Mastodon, you know, my understanding is that there's a the different servers and each server has different moderation policies. 
So that's, you know, I'm not quite sure how you um, yeah. research that before you sign up for a particular server. Because when I signed up for my account, you sort of just had to pick a server. I mean, there wasn't a lot of right. information about yeah. which one, yeah. you know, which one would be the best for you kind of thing. Um, so my, my sense of Mastodon, again, I'm not an expert, but I, I do feel like some of the more technical, the fact that it's more technically demanding and it requires a more in-depth knowledge of computer science, I think will be a barrier to entry for a lot of people, you know, and, and part of the thing with social media is the ease of using it, you know, attracts um, a wide user base. And so I'm a little concerned about that, but, you know, I do think it's past time that people like me or other progressive uh, commentators and journalists kind of branch out because, you know, my experience over the past week shows how arbitrarily your page or, you know, your following your account can be just taken from you. And so, um, you know, I do think it's important to kind of branch out at this point. And so I do one silver lining of this whole thing was that it, it really inspired me to sink some time into figuring out posts, getting busy on there. And now I'm, I'm planning, like I said, to do that with Mastodon, Mastodon as well. So I have a quick question about Post. You mentioned it was in the beta version right now. And, mm -hmm. and, and so I think the features are still developing. But um, you also mentioned that the comment section is a very engaged part of, I guess, Post. How vicious are the comments there? Is it pretty bad or is it less, I guess, vicious than Twitter based off of your experience? I've so been far? blown away with how nice the comments are there. Because, you know, again, I think, I think most of the people there are left of center is my sense. Um, now... I should say I've been much more busy on there actually posting things than like using it to follow. I mean, I follow a number of accounts on there already, but um, you know, I, I must confess that I'm still kind of using Twitter these days as like my main, you know, like if I'm just following one social media platform in terms of my news feed, yeah. it's Twitter still. Um, yep. mm -hmm. So that, that might change over time. But so, so I haven't done kind of the, I haven't invested the time to really have like a global take on like what the user base looks like, but just going based on what I'm seeing in my feed from, people that I follow and people commenting, I mean, it seems very supportive, um, you know, more of a like-minded group of people who are left of center, progressive, um, you know, and I think we've all kind of experienced on Twitter, um, especially since they went with the paid verification thing that like, yeah. you know, my um, verified mentions are just kind of like a cesspool most of the time these days. Yeah. I think I've, mm -hmm. I've probably muted like thousands of accounts. Um, yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a big, you know, post compared to that is very, very different in a good way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I am kind of encouraged, um, you know, getting involved on post with its upside. I think there is potential there. Um, the one thing that you really can't replace at this point, at least with Twitter, is just the scale. You know, one of the cool things with Twitter is that, um, you know, pretty much any public figure, brands, uh, institutions, sports teams are all on Twitter, right? And Post yeah. doesn't really have that yet. You know, that just takes time. Um, but I do think, you know, Elon has been so erratic, you know, and now, of course, there's indications that maybe he's stepping down or will kind of distance himself so that could change things. But I do think we were really, we were really nearing a point with Twitter where, like, consider, you know, like the White House. Um, they're running, you know, Joe Biden has an account. They have all these official White House accounts. At what point does it become such a right wing cesspool that you kind of cut bait and even posting, yeah. you know, you know, yeah. you on those yeah. sorts of accounts or if you're a brand. And I do think, you know, we already saw some indications of brands saying that they were pausing or even like I know CBS News for a CBS, minute yeah. wasn't posting. And yeah. so um, I do think we were kind of rapidly nearing a point and maybe we still are where, you know, tough decisions were going to have to be made. Um, for me personally, it's kind of complex because I don't really feel like I have 
like the, the the idea of kind of cutting myself off from Twitter um, because my audience is there seems kind of self-defeating, you know, so that was never really in the plans for me. But, you know, if you're someone like the White House or, you know, a, a Democratic member of Congress or something like that, um, maybe you could do more good by announcing that you are kind of uh, pulling back from Twitter to kind of stop validating it because, um you know, the direction that it's been headed has been one that has felt very kind of toxic and unwelcoming unless you are, you know, one of the like-minded people with Elon, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. the, the mega the mega universe. Well, I certainly hope that he steps down and that we can go back to the old Twitter because I know I really loved engaging with people on Twitter and I learned a lot from them. I got great input from them and it was a very valuable tool to reaching out and to getting not just my message out, but to learning from the people who comment on them. So I'm, I'm hoping, and I think there are some problems, as you noted, with Mastodon and Post doesn't even have an app yet. Um, mm, I, I know yeah, that they yeah. will eventually, but it makes it harder to post on it because you yeah. have to do it from, you know, post.news.com slash, you know, it, it just, it's not as easy as just clicking an icon. So hopefully, um, those other platforms will be there. Uh, I believe in the free marketplace of ideas, the truth comes out and we need to have as many opportunities for that dialogue to happen as we possibly can. Absolutely. And, and let's dive deeper into Elon's behavior, um, which in our view, I think is beginning to have profound implications for journalists. You mentioned independent journalists like yourself and just democracy and free speech. Um, after he banned you and the nine others, I um, mentioned that he also suspended uh, Taylor Lorenz's account, allegedly either because she asked him a question or because she tweeted her handles on other social media platforms. I am wondering when you look at all of this and seeing what happened to you what do you think is behind all of this from Elon's point of view? Like, why do you think he's banning people who seemingly are just doing their jobs of reporting? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get into his head, but I do think it's hard to avoid the conclusion that he's that this is meant to have a chilling effect. Um, you know, it's kind of meant, I think, on some level to get people like me thinking twice about whether it's worth it to try and hold him accountable or criticize him. You know, is it really worth posting this criticism if you're going to get your account uh, taken away, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I don't even think my suspension was the most troubling of them. I mean, I thought, you know, Lynette Lopez at Insider, who, you know, going back years has done investigative reporting about Tesla. And, you know, a lot of the investigative journalism that she's done has portrayed Elon in a negative light. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't followed in the last couple of days, but I know that over the weekend she was saying that she was banned and not offered any explanation whatsoever. And Twitter hadn't commented on it. And so to me, that one really seemed like kind of just blatant retaliation. Like, at least in my instance, there was kind of this pretend reason, right, that we had endangered his family. I mean, at least they, they had a reason. In her case, I don't even think they have that. And the same thing with Taylor, where um, I know that she had basically deleted all of her tweets um, before she was banned. So there are only three tweets even live on her page. Um, and then, you know, hours after she was banned, Twitter came out with that policy about not promoting other social media platforms. And right. there was some insinuation that she had violated that. Um, now it seems like they have rescinded that policy, right? Because they deleted the big Twitter thread where they announced that. So I don't even know if that's even operative at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the prohibition against uh, promoting your other accounts on Instagram or Mastodon, things like that. 
So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I kind of, you know, in terms of the question of what Elon is trying to do here. I mean, I do think it's meant to kind of silence his critics. Um, you know, I think he's pretty thin skinned and we're seeing that every day. Um, but I also think that, you know, the suspending of journalists was a really bad look for him and probably has played a role in, you know, some of the speculation that's swirling that he has fueled with, you know, putting up a poll asking if he should step down, that he's going to distance himself from this whole mess because, um, you know, him having such a hands-on role and being as ideologically driven as he is, um, is kind of tanking his business. And, you know, I mean, I certainly he, um, He's one of the richest people in the world in the world. So it might just be kind of fun money for him. I'm not totally sure on that. But um, to the extent that he is trying to at least keep Twitter alive, if not make it profitable, you know, I think alienating people like me who, you know, the videos that I've posted on Twitter over the years have done it's, it's closing in on like 5 billion views wow. just on the videos that I've posted. And so you would think, you know, I don't say that to be braggadocious, but I say that because you would you would think that I would be the type of person that Elon Musk would want to be on good terms with because, yes. you know, I can drive a lot of, you know, I continue to drive a lot of eyeballs and engagement to the site. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's alienating people like me, I think, um, speaks pretty poorly in terms of the type of business he's trying to run. Yeah. And, and not only has he gotten rid of people like you, but he has gotten rid of internal teams that are, I think, essential, um, in terms of enforcing misinformation and lies. And, that to me in some ways is more concerning because when we talk about free speech, the First Amendment only applies to government interference. He's a private individual, so he can do whatever he wants, and it's not a violation of the First Amendment. But if he promotes misinformation and lies, that's that troubles me. What do you think of that aspect of it? Yeah, that's a really um, important distinction. And, you know, because I've gotten a lot of this in my replies where, you know, I've gotten a lot of right wingers kind of saying, oh, now that the shoe's on the other foot, how does it feel? You know, this idea that um, the rules on Twitter have always been arbitrary and now, you know, it's, it's the libs turn to um, be hurt by them sort of thing. And Jill, I think, you know, obviously there's a distinction there between um, some of the things that were getting accounts banned in the pre-Musk era, which, you know, again, was inciting insurrection, organizing a coup attempt <laughs> or um, spreading deadly wow. misinformation, you know, that harms people. Um, you know, I think obviously um, companies have to you're going to have to have some moderation policy, right? You can't just have things willy nilly because, you know, people are using your platform to, you know, commit criminal acts, organize criminal acts, harass people. I mean, there can be consequences for that, you know, and especially if it's a for-profit business that obviously hurts any sort of profit motive you might have to make uh, your platform a really unsafe place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, I, I know that it was a couple of weeks ago, Musk announced that they were no longer enforcing any policies against spreading public health misinformation. Right. And so, you know, it's pretty obvious what the negative consequences of that could be, um, you know, in terms of if you are encouraging people not to get vaccinated, they don't get vaccinated, they get COVID, they die, or maybe they spread it to other people who die. I mean, these are real harms that can occur, you know, if people um, end up being confused by misinformation on your platform. So, you know, it gets back to, like you said, I mean, and I had to try and explain that a number of uh, media hits I did over the weekend with foreign outlets where, some of them wanted to frame this conversation around the First Amendment. And it's like, no, not really, because it is a private company. And yeah. so, you know, unless yeah. the government's interfering in one way or another, it doesn't really have a First Amendment implication. It's kind of Elon's playground. And if he wants to kick people out of it, he can. 
But, you know, that just gets back to at what point if you are a, you know, uh, a person who is against uh, spreading deadly misinformation, things like that, you know, at what point do you kind of become culpable in continuing to use the platform if that is what it's all about these days? And so, you know, I think it's more of a consumer choice in that way rather than any sort of policy shift. And Jill, you'd probably be more, more of an expert than me in terms of whether there would be some sort of legal liability, you know, if Twitter really became like a haven for um, blatant public health misinformation that harmed people. I mean, I, I could see that there might be some sort of legal liability involved in that. Yes. I'm not quite sure on that, but um, you know, I, I guess that in theory could be one guardrail, even if Elon does really want to take things back to more of a wild west situation where there aren't as many rules. Exactly. And I think there could be legal liabilities and the FCC might have to get involved in trying to pass some rules, but mm-hmm. are there any mechanisms for accountability left at Twitter anymore? Is there any group of people still trying to protect truth at Twitter? Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's kind of one other um, somewhat interesting aspect of this whole thing was, you know, back in the pre-Elon days, I probably knew about a dozen people at Twitter, you know, on the basis where I could DM them or email them. Um, if problems arose, you know, there were people to talk to and I knew who to reach out to. Every single one of those people has either left or been fired. So it was at a point where um, I was basically like everybody else when I was suspended, just waiting for Elon to tweet about it um, because, you know, I didn't know who to reach out to. Like I mentioned, their formal process didn't even work um, for filing an appeal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know who's left there. It's obviously a very bare bones situation. Mm. But then that also raises questions about like, what if... um, like I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, Jojo from Jers, uh, yes, you know, yes. and she, her account was hacked this week. I last I saw it was still controlled by hackers. Um, and I feel like in a previous era, you know, if people were mass reporting an account for being hacked, there would have been some sort of action taken. And, you know, her account yeah. was, was <laughs> controlled by hackers for at least a day and it might still be, you know, and I just don't know if there's really infrastructure at Twitter to, deal with things like that. If you report someone for threatening her or harassing you, who is look, you know, who is dealing with that and on what yeah. time frame will they get around to it kind of thing. And so, you know, that does, you know, for me, um, one thing that, you know, during COVID quarantine, um, our, uh, two-year-old daughter Mia was born in May, 2020. And so, you know, everybody was quarantined. It kind of became this thing where so many people took pleasure for me posting photos and videos, you know, cute mm-hmm. family things. Mm-hmm. And, um, that kind of became a hit over COVID, but you know, it's, it got to the point where it just, and it probably shouldn't have been, it it was probably not a smart thing to do from the beginning, but especially with Elon running it, it just got to a point where no longer felt safe or responsible to post any sort of personal stuff on Twitter, you know, and that's just one little, you know, implication of all of this, but it, it does really feel like there isn't any sort of infrastructure in place. If you report harassment, um, doxing, those sorts of things. Um, there's just no staff left to deal with it. And even if there was, you know, it seems like the the ideological mission is to kind of uh, deconstruct the rules rather than enforce them. So um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was kind of a unfortunate thing because my first thought when I was suspended was, well, I could reach out to person X, Y, or Z at Twitter. And then as I was uh-huh. kind of taking through the options, it was like, no, they're not there. They're not uh-huh. there. They quit, you know? And so there's just no one left to appeal to at this point. 
Uh, well, we hope that Twitter survives because um, I think it provides an essential role for journalists, for democracy. Uh, but we want to get into, um, aside from your being banned from Twitter, you're also um, a journalist who focuses on the far right. And I think that is so important, especially now, to shed light on that. So we want to ask you about that and the role of independent journalists in the media and exposing and pushing back against the far right. Um, you spent three years at Vox with a V um, covering the far right. Talk to us about what you learned during your time um, covering that movement when you, when you were there? Well, I was covering more specifically Trump and the Trump White House, which I guess is part of the far right. Um, you know, but I, I wouldn't say that I'm the type of reporter who, um, like, I never really went like super deep on like the Proud Boys or some of these more organized far right groups. Um, but you know, so basically, what happened was um, I started at Think Progress was my first job. You know, which no longer exists in national media, and I was an editor there. But when I started in early 2016, they had a need for someone to cover the Republican primary, which was happening at the time, um, which was something I could do, even though I was an editor from the newsroom. Um, but what that led to was watching a lot of Trump rallies. Um, you know, basically covering Trump because at that point it was already pretty clear that he was going to win the nomination. And so, you know, eventually as his presidential campaign unfolded that summer into the fall, um, it ended up with me watching a ton of Trump rallies. And in early 2017, I got into posting video uh, kind of in real time, you know, covering his rallies, covering the White House press briefings, congressional hearings, that sort of stuff. And so that was kind of my beat, you know, like Trump and the Trump White House basically all the way through his presidency. Um, and obviously that intersects quite a bit with the far right. You know, you had someone like Steve Bannon, who has a lot of connections in that world, or Roger Stone. And those are people that I covered. Um, but I would want to kind of, you know, I, I do want to draw a little bit of a distinction because um, I wouldn't consider myself to be an expert on, you know, the kind of far right organizing or right. Um, sure. things that kind of operated, you know, at a deeper level than what we saw in the U.S. government or in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, I still to this day kind of think of my beat as covering the American right more broadly. So, you know, whether that's Trump world, I mean, now obviously we have this kind of budding um, contest between DeSantis yeah. and Trump and maybe some others for the 2024 nomination. I've been writing a lot about that and publishing a lot of commentary on that. Um, and then I cover right wing media as well, which, you know, Fox News, Newsmax, um, even like the, you know, Bannon's video podcast, right wing events, Turning Point USA, stuff like that. So, um, in terms of what I learned about that movement, uh, covering it, um, you know, I guess nothing that, you know, like the one thing that, that I keep coming back to is just the, the way, you know, how fact free that world is kind of the sense that, um, truth and falsity don't really, they're kind of means to an end, um, and so, you know, a, one of my roles at Vox was basically fact checking Trump. Um, but, you know, there was the sense that sometimes those fact checks could be very useful for like minded people like us to, you know, kind of cut through the disinformation and understand what was going on or what the utility of certain <laughs> lies were. But the notion that uh, fact checking someone like Trump or, you know, even many Republicans who were in Congress would ever change their behavior or, you know, chastise them into being more truthful. Um, I think we're kind of far past that point. So it kind of creates uh, difficulties in covering them because there is always that question of whether it's worth amplifying some of the things that they say yes. and giving right. oxygen to lies. Yeah. Um, I tried to kind of deal with that on a case by case basis where I think, you know, some lies are so consequential that you have to unpack them and debunk them. 
But when you're chasing every true social post that Trump puts up and kind of spreading it around, um, I do think that you can kind of do his bidding, you know, in almost a PR sense by um, getting his narratives out there. And so that's, you know, that question of kind of the amplification versus um, just covering the news is something that I still almost, you know, every single day uh, struggle with. Although you, you, I think your audience is largely progressive. Yeah. So um, they already are people who are focused on facts yeah. and who aren't believing that stuff. Is there a way to get that same message to the people who actually believe what they're saying? And I, I, it, it's always hard for me to believe that people actually think that it's true when he says the election was stolen. Mm -hmm. But how do you communicate to that group of people? Is there any way that you have found that you might be able to influence even one person to change their mind? Yeah, um, I always think it is really helpful to show instead of tell to the extent possible. And what I mean by that is, especially <clears throat> at Fox, the style of writing there was not very polemical. You wanted to um, be descriptive, you know, in the sense that um, explaining why something is wrong or explaining why Trump is lying about something so that it doesn't come across as insulting someone or... Um, you don't turn people off by using polemical language, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I feel like writers, you know, like like Daniel Dale at CNN is really, really good at that, where you would never know. I mean, I'm, I'm not even really sure what his political convictions are. You read his fact checks and they're very kind of down the middle. And so I think using that sort of neutral language that is still, you know, you don't want to kind of couch things in a, in a both sides sort of framing that can kind of obfuscate and confuse yeah. people. But um, you know, you also want to be kind of neutral in your language and descriptive so that you don't alienate people right out of the gate. Um, but that's, you know, it's tough because Jill, I think you're right that most of my audience, I would say the vast majority of it are progressive people. And so the service that I provide for them is, you know, kind of immersing myself in right-wing media and in Trump world so they don't have to and sort of surfacing interesting tidbits that are newsworthy Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I view it as a service kind of for, you know, people who are either politically down the middle or left of center. Um, I'm sure that there are some people on the right. I mean, I know that there are on Twitter who follow me as kind of a, you know, gateway into what the libs are talking about at any given moment or, you know, sort of understanding, uh, the, the American left. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to think if there's ever been an instance, I, you know, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head where like a Trump supporters reached out to me and said, wow, you really changed my mind with this article that you wrote or this, this Twitter thread that you did. Um, I'm sure that there ha you know, have been people who have been persuaded by the arguments I've made in my work or, you know, fact checks I've included in Twitter threads, things like that. Um, but I, I'm not sure I have all the answers on that. I mean, it's a really difficult subject but you know i try not to um alienate people who might be open-minded um to being persuaded about things um so i think that's more of like kind of styles of communication than than anything else but um i wish i had the answers because you know i'd run like a political consultancy or something if i did i mean i, I know for a lot of young people especially i mean that that i think to live in a world where facts don't matter and, and jill and i we often talk about this during the nixon era it was you only had such a limited pool of information. The facts were ultimately what prevailed at the end of the day. But when you have so much misinformation and disinformation on lies, I'm just wondering if you can kind of pull that thread for us. Like, how do you wrestle between, I guess, covering something? You mentioned, you know, not covering every single Trump truth social tweet, but 
when it comes to his rallies, when it, when it comes to posting that, like, what is what is the balancing test for you ultimately um, in, in that decision? Yeah, um, it's definitely more of an art than a science, I would say. But I try to think through things in the framework of what is newsworthy. So, for instance, you know, if Trump is on stage calling Liz Cheney a rhino, you know, basically insulting people, things like that. I, I don't think that's particularly newsworthy, his insults. Um, nor is that really something that I feel is important to share with my audience. But, you know, if he's on stage, um, you know, for instance, his most recent speech was to literally announce his presidential campaign. So obviously that's newsworthy that he's officially running for president again. Or when he was president, you know, and he would announce some executive order that he was going to sign or, um, you know, some sort of agenda item that he was pushing. Um, you know, those are newsworthy things, you know, especially when he was president, because everything that you say when you're president is newsworthy. I mean, you know, that that can translate to policies that impact people, you know, just to to things that can impact our country. And so um, I think getting that stuff is out there. Again, I would put kind of his insults in a different box. Um, but, you know, there is also um, the sense in which Trump can kind of wear people down. I mean, one, one that comes to mind is when he would call MS-13 members animals, you know, and use like really dehumanizing language, which I thought was really inappropriate for a president to use. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly we can say MS-13 is terrible and there are terrible people within MS-13, but to call kind of a whole category of people animals, you know, and talk about how bloodthirsty they are and use really violent rhetoric surrounding a whole class of people um, is very dangerous, especially coming from the president. But Trump would do that so often that, you know, by like the fifth or sixth speech when he was saying this, it's like he would kind of almost wear me out, too, where it's like, do I really need to even post this clip of him saying this at this point? Yeah. Because, you know, everybody kind of understands what's going on. Um, and so that's one way in which I think he would normalize really kind of dangerous and extreme stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it is really kind of a case by case thing. I mean, like even just before we got on this podcast, I saw that. He was posting a series of posts on Truth Social, kind of hitting back at the January 6th committee and, you know, in kind of um, really over the top rhetoric, you know, proclaim proclaiming that the 2020 election was rigged by the FBI and all this silly stuff. And, you know, I actually had a, a tweet drafted that was basically, you know, something along the lines of <coughs> racking my brains to remember who was president in 2020, because one of his posts was yeah. the government rigged the 2020 election. It's like, well, you ran the government in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and then also he handpicked um he handpicked uh Christopher Ray as FBI director. Um yeah, so that, that yeah. was his guy, yeah. you know, and now he's trying to portray him as some sort of left-wing plant. Yeah. Um but I ended up not posting it because it's just like, you know, it's not really new. I mean, I think we kind of understand what's going on there. Um now I think there is kind of an interesting debate about the amplification issue and you know someone that I listen to on this is uh, Josh Marshall at TPM. And his view on it is that, you know, this idea that we shouldn't amplify Trump is kind of silly because his followers are listening to him. His message is going right. to get out That's to true. the people that he wants to hear it. And so it's incumbent upon us if we're trying to understand and be prepared for what's coming with the Republican Party and with Trump to pay attention and to get that out there and not kind of put our heads in the sand and pretend that if we don't look at the monster in the corner, it'll go away sort of thing. <laughs> And I do find that to be a pretty persuasive uh, viewpoint, but I also don't necessarily want to pollute my timeline or the brains of my followers with every stray thought that Trump has. And so, 
Yeah. I just try to be judicious. Uh, today, my judgment was that it wasn't worth amplifying his nonsense on true social. But, you know, maybe tomorrow I'll think differently, uh, differently about mm -hmm. it. It is definitely more of an art than a science. I, I'm so glad that you're being thoughtful about this because yeah. it is an important issue. But you mentioned the Republican Party. So let's move to that. And um, is the Republican Party that I knew um, and that maybe even you knew in the early days uh, completely gone? Is the Republican Party now one that has turned against democracy, is embracing authoritarianism? And uh, how bad has it gotten? Maybe even worse since Trump left office. What do you yeah. think? I think this is a pretty complex topic because even as we're talking today um, in the news earlier today, and I think in the news right now is the fact that as part of this huge spending bill um, that Congress is apparently going to pass this week, there are reforms to the Electoral Count Act mm -hmm. in there, which, you know, take a variety of measures basically aimed at making it more difficult to pull off what Trump tried to two years ago, which is basically leveraging Republican state legislatures um, and fake elector schemes to throw, throw out the results of an election. And that package of reforms has bipartisan support, including, you know, Mitch McConnell supports it. Um, mm -hmm. There are enough Republican senators who support that where it seems like this is going to be passed this week. And so uh, when you talk about, you know, whether the Republican Party is kind of beyond salvaging or completely committed to authoritarianism, you know, I think that's one data point indicating that um, despite some of the rhetoric, um, you know, they're actually taking some measures Republicans are to try to cut off at the past any future attempt to basically do what Trump did. And so I think that's actually kind of a positive indicator um, on that score. Mm -hmm. I think we saw that in this midterm elections, um, the candidates who were most committed to the election denial and the big lie fared pretty poorly overall. And so, you know, oh, I think just yeah. from the standpoint of kind of political self-interest, um, the big lie has proven to be a political loser. And so I don't know if you, you know, I, I think then it's a question of, well, are Republicans really committed to democracy or is it just kind of a self-preservation thing where they're realizing that um, open authoritarianism is a political loser, at least in general elections. We saw this a lot last year, a really kind of fascinating dynamic um, here in Minnesota, for instance, the, the guy who ended up being the Republican nominee for governor is named Scott Jensen. Um, this is on a you know slightly different than, than the democracy issue, but in the Republican primary, one of his big um, talking points was that he was you know extremely pro-life and that if he was governor, he would push for restrictions on reproductive rights. And then, of course, um, after that came the Dobbs decision and the whole politics surrounding that issue changed. And then in the general election, he had to kind of un very unpersuasively try and walk that back and say, well, actually, abortion isn't on the ballot this year. I wouldn't change anything, you know, um, and Democrats were very effectively able to use his quotes from the primary against him. And we saw with uh, Bolduck up in New Hampshire, who was running for Senate, where in his uh, primary, he was very much into the big lie and kind of echoing Trump's big lie. And then he had to try and distance himself from that in the general and it didn't really work because Democrats could use his own quotes against him from just months earlier. And so, you know, that is kind of a, an interesting that dynamic where, you know, th that's kind of always been a part of politics, but yeah. you see more extremism in the primaries. And then these candidates have to sort of tack towards the middle in the general elections. And that can be kind of a difficult maneuver to pull off, uh, especially with how extreme 
um, the mega part of the Republican Party is these days. So, um, I mean, I, I certainly think the Trump wing of the party is committed to authoritarianism and to undermining democracy. Um, but I think probably more Republicans than would acknowledge so publicly are pretty lukewarm at best about Trump at this point. Um, but one thing to kind of, you know, from a political standpoint that I think is going to be really interesting to follow over this next year is that I think the more candidates that get involved in the Republican primary, the better it is for Trump. Um, because, you know, Trump has basically his 30 or 40 percent of, you know, essentially cult members who will support him no matter what. Yeah. And, you know, if there are 10 candidates and he has 30 percent and the other nine yeah. are splitting up that other 70 percent. Well, the 30% might, might end up being the plurality, you know, and you right, can use right. to force other candidates out. So I think for someone like DeSantis, the more that DeSantis can keep it to kind of a, you know, him versus Trump dynamic, the better chance that he will have. Now, I mean, I think we've seen in Florida that I'm not sure DeSantis is much better than Trump, um, you know, with the, kind of his uh, homophobia, the bigotry, you know, the, the uh, dehumanizing of migrants, flying them all over the country picking fights with Disney, you know, because they um, have some qualms with his homophobic agenda, things like that. So, you know, I am not really sure he is much better uh, than Trump. But, you know, one thing that I do think is notable is that, you know, after some initial, um, you know, DeSantis right after the 2020 election, um, you know, echoed Trump's big lie to a certain point, but he really hasn't talked about the 2020 election much over the past two years. And so I think, you know, again, it, it kind of raises that question of, well, does that indicate that DeSantis is less anti, anti-democracy than Trump is, or is that just a no. political calculation in his part? I'm not sure on that, um, but you know, it's a little bit of a different topic, but that's one thing heading into 2023 that I'm definitely tracking is I think the more candidates that get involved, um, the better that that will turn out for Trump. Yeah. Well, that'll be really interesting to watch out. And and one one last question for you, and this is um, something that we like to ask all our guests, which is for the young people who are thinking about getting into this space of journalism, what advice would you have them, um, maybe in particular, given what we've talked about today, some of the media landscape and social media landscape that we're facing right now? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a really... Um... It's a really broad question. I'm trying to think of like how I could boil that down to people. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, for me, um, in my own experience, you know, developing a skill set that I could use to grow a big audience um, was huge. I mean, the most valuable commodity I have is my Twitter following, which this experience that I just had this past week was a really reassuring. It really reassured me that people will follow me wherever I go, that it's not so much just Twitter. It's, you know, kind of you earn the support of people over time. And even if you're banished, they will track you down somewhere else if they enjoy your work. So that was kind of a cool thing to be reminded of. Um, but I think, you know, for me, because I cover kind of more of a, I cover politics quite broadly. I mean, again, I kind of focus on the American right, but my newsletter is kind of about American politics. And, you know, if there's one story I'm covering, it's kind of the you know, the struggle over democracy and sort of this sense that our democracy is in peril and Republican efforts to undermine it. Um, but I'm not really like a specialist in the sense that I don't have like a, a niche area of coverage. Um, so unless you have a niche that you're really strong in and that kind of sets you apart, doing whatever you can on your own to grow an audience um, not only will help you if you're independent, but that makes you attractive to employers. Um, you know, one of the things that led me to Vox was the fact that, you know, I was one of the foremost Trump chroniclers on social media. And so when Vox was looking for someone leading into the 2020 campaign to kind of head up their Trump coverage, um, 
not only had I kind of demonstrated that I had the ability to do it, but having a large audience made me attractive as well, because you can use that to drive traffic to, you know, the Vox, Vox articles that I wrote or that other yeah. people wrote sort of thing. And so um, just, you know, being mindful of that. I mean, it's easier said than done, but to the extent that you can develop skills, like in my case, kind of uh, video skills and, um, you know, kind of basic production skills that, you know, allows me both to write articles and also do videos that are engaging to people online, which has kind of raised my stature. Um, just being mindful of ways that you can grow an audience on your own um, will help you no matter where you find yourself in your career, whether you're on your own or trying to find a job through a traditional employer. Well, that's great advice for our younger listeners who are thinking about journalism as a career. And uh, of course, you need a factual basis as well. So you need to develop some actual knowledge of an area so that you can cover it or at least learn a way to get the facts, uh, which is what journalists do, is they learn how to ask the right questions at the right time. And Aaron, you've been doing that for a long time and serving your viewers and listeners very well. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Jill, Victor, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Be happy to, to, to uh, do it again down the line. So uh, Great. Thanks, so much. thanks again. Of course. We'll look forward thanks, to it. Yep. Happy holidays. Jill, that was a wonderful episode. I know there's been something that we have wanted to talk about um, for this past week, and that's this new Washington Post article um, that came out about Gen Zers in the workplace and how the language that we use and how we communicate with each other and to our um, older, I guess, bosses um, is throwing some of the workplace culture off. And so, um, you know, one of the things that this article mentioned was things like, adding emojis to the end of sentences or not using periods or instead of doing long blocks of messages, they would do um, like many, many messages to get a point yeah. across. Um, but the other thing they used, which I thought was interesting was they would use um, slang. So words like uh, there was one called slay, which is basically means that when you like kill it or like when you do a good job, yeah. and, whereas maybe older generations might say good job or you did a, you know, you did fine. Young people would say slay. And I think it's confusing a lot of people in the workplace. And so I'm wondering First, what was your experience like when you were working with younger people? Was it like that or um, what, what was it like for you? Well, let me say, first of all, that um, my experience with younger people uh, uh, really is with you and with uh, I had another mentee um, when I was at the Chicago Public Schools heading the career and technical education. And he attracted my attention much as you did because you communicate like an adult. You actually speak in sentences and write in paragraphs and use correct grammar. And so did Ira. Um, so hi, Ira, if you happen to be listening to this, Ira Milton, you are a gem as well as Victor. Um, but I will say this, that as head of career and technical education, one of my jobs was to talk to corporations to find out what were the skills that we needed to prepare students with so that they would be hireable? What would make someone employable? And one of the things that employers routinely and universally said was they have to learn workplace culture rules. They have to learn how to dress. When we say get dressed up, that doesn't mean they come in cocktail attire, but that's what they think it means. They can't come to, to work with 500 bracelets and 
rings and nails that are six inches long. It doesn't look professional. And so you need to teach them that. And then you need to teach them to speak properly. So I think that, you know, emojis, now I happen to use emojis in some of my correspondence. I actually use Bitmoji and have an avatar who I like it to looks, think it looks, looks like, like, you, like actually. <laughs> I, I sort of hope it does. I mean, it, it has blonde curly hair. Um, and it, it, it's kind of fun to have that as a way of creatively. It's sort of like how I use pins. Mm -hmm. It's a way of setting a creative message. And I like that. So, and by the way, slay is not a new word. I know the word slay. You slay. <laughs> I, I mean, I get it. But there are a lot of, you know, things that I have to look up when I see um, in a response to myself on Twitter or something. There are words or letters that turn out to be a phrase that I don't know um, that are, you know, obviously I know all the easy ones, you know, LOL and all that kind of stuff. But um to me, it's not lazy writing. When you're typing in a text, it's a lot easier to say LOL than to write out the whole thing. Yes, yes. So um, I, I think that the workplace is going to have to adjust to it and get used to it and learn to accept uh, what is, you know, it goes back when I was at the Pentagon, there was a big issue about, I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, but there were certain words that were used in the African-American community that weren't used in the white community. And, and mm -hmm. people were being penalized for using that because you had to speak like the majority of people. And again, I believe in multiculturalism. And I think that I have to learn those words in the same way. But on the other hand, when you're making a presentation to a client, um, it's one of the things we taught students at CPS. You have to be able to communicate. That's the basic goal. And yeah, so you yeah. have to think about what will your audience understand? And if you're talking to a senior person, to a boss, who's not going to know the words you're using, you're not going to be communicating. And that goes back to my first year in Jern school. I used the word conflagration and I got it back with a big red X through it saying <laughs> fire, say fire. Don't use the fancy words. Use words that your audience will understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it, anything has changed. It's, it's, we have to use words that are universally understood and that have the same definition. You know, I feel like for a lot of young people, at least when when, you, when I hear you talking about that, I, I read this one article by the New York Times, and and you know me, I'm an old soul, and so I, I tend not to, <laughs> I, I I tend to follow the formalities. I I you know over the summer I was at the White House interning, and every single day I would go in with a suit and tie, no matter how much I hated it. I knew that it made me look more presentable, and it made me yeah. look more professional than it had I come into you know what some of my friends who work in the um, CS or tech industry do, which is they just go in in shorts and. A t-shirt, but I think a lot of Gen Zers feel like a lot of those formalities at work just aren't really necessary anymore. And so they feel like <laughs> now they have to completely change the workplace culture. It shouldn't be so stringent. It shouldn't be so strict. And so um, I think there's this kind of Gen Zers, at least there's this kind of, in, in general, there's a sense of we want to take things from you know what it once was and kind of reinvent it and make it our own and I think that's part of what we're seeing and in terms of communication I think social media has to do a huge role 
in terms of how we communicate in the workplace. Um, you know, there was there was one mentioned in that Washington Post article too, which is about just emojis and the and the use of emojis. Um, you know, thumbs up apparently is too dull. Um, instead, we want things like. Um, I don't know, like a heart or like um, like one of the smiley faces with hearts around it um, because it conveys more emotion. And I think there's a lot of more kind of, I don't know, maybe, maybe Gen Zers just like more of like making emotions intentional, making it clear. Um, the thumbs up is just kind of a boring, I don't know, emoji that- Might be boring, but it communicates. It communicates I get, yes. when you send me a thumbs up, it means, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. If you yeah. send me a thumbs down, it means the opposite. And so yeah. I, it's, and it's not just, um, it's also how you dress. And look at Sam Bankman Free. <laughs> I mean, he got billions of dollars from people yeah, dressed yeah. the way he dresses. I wouldn't give my money to somebody who, had messy hair and sloppy shorts and t-shirts hanging out. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't look like someone who takes serious. And obviously I would have been right. <laughs> he didn't take it seriously. Yeah. He, he didn't. Uh, that's why all those people lost their money. Uh, so I, I think it is uh, an evolving society. When I started practicing law, I could not wear pants. I had to wear a skirt no matter where mm -hmm. I was and then they got to casual Friday, one day a week, everybody was allowed to wear either jeans or for, for women, we could wear pants instead of a skirt. And then it got to be every day was casual Friday. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I don't judge people uh, so much on that, but messy is messy. And, you know, yeah. wearing a clean pair of pants and a shirt, that's fine wearing ripped jeans and dirty pants and that just doesn't present someone who looks serious about their endeavors. So I think it's, it's going to be changing. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, this, the sisters-in-law talked about recently about the use of emojis and yeah. the use of explanation points. Oh yes. And whether yes. you use them or not. And I think it goes uh, back to that whole, like we like people, we like expression. We like people who right. are willing to express and an exclamation point, at least I know I was taught when I was younger and this maybe is, goes back to like the old soul part of me, but one of my <laughs> teachers told me, you know, don't use more than one or two exclamation points in email right. because then it looks disingenuous or you're trying to be fake. But a lot of people, you know, my friends, they don't just use one, they use like multiple at the end of each sentence. And so it's, um, I think it's interesting to see this use of exclamation points um, right. versus periods. And I think a lot of younger people that I know, at least, tend to use exclamation points more than periods by far. Well, I think, again, it's one of those things, if you overuse it, then you're not emphasizing anything because right, it's exactly. just routine. Yeah. If you only use it, you know, three times in a long piece, then you know that you're expressing something different and your reader knows that you're expressing something different. So I do use explanation points and hopefully not, you know, not too often. And I seldom, very, very seldom use more than one, <laughs> but, but I have used more than one if I'm really excited. And I've even used all caps, you know, for one mm -hmm. word, maybe mm -hmm. to draw attention. I know that means you're screaming on Twitter. Um, I'm hoping, by the way, going back to our conversation with Aaron, that someone will come out with a publication that says, what are the rules for all these new platforms? I don't hmm. understand. I understand what a hashtag means on Twitter. I understand what the at means. I don't know what it all means on the other places. 
and I, I need someone to tell me how do I respond to people? How do I comment back or reply to comments? I haven't learned that yet on, on any of these platforms and I miss the conversation. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm sticking mm -hmm. with Twitter while, while I can. We need like an AP style guide of like social media yes. platforms. And I'm sure, yes. you know, our audience is talented. I'm, I know there are some very capable people in our audience. So if any of you guys want to get started on this project, it'll go a long way. We will amplify it. So if you want to yes. create this um, AP style guide for social media and Mastodon and post and, you know, what these, what these words mean, feel free to do so. Um, yeah. Or email us at Politicon. We are at IGP at Politicon.com, where you can tweet us. Um, I think you can include PDFs on Twitter. So if you want to download it as a PDF, we will also see it there. Um, but that was a fascinating conversation. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the workforce now. Um, you know, I, th I think Gen Z and how we present ourselves in the workforce is quite interesting. Um, and that article got a lot of attention. I know yeah. I was, some of my friends were talking about it and, you know, I, I was, there was, there's some of my friends who I'm like, this applies very much to you in terms of they, they wear ripped jeans and they wear, you know, baggy t-shirts. I'm like, <laughs> my, uh, I might want to reconsider, but it's, um, <laughs> it was an interesting piece. And we hope you enjoyed this episode with Aaron Rupar um, and that you will come back next week. We will um, hopefully be doing some of a different episode. So stay tuned for that and um, be sure to like and subscribe. In the meantime, we are at youtube.com slash Politicon. And be sure to share this video with anyone you know. Um, and we hope you have a great Christmas, a great start to your Hanukkah, and just a great holiday season um, until next week. Um, thanks so much. And we will see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics. <laughs>